Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. After last week's chat with Darius Charles, we stay on the football theme with another ex-professional footballer, Robbie Elliott. We used to have to get to training early because the players' kit would be numbered, but the socks and the underwear and the towels wouldn't. So you would have to fight for socks without holes in, because if your pro had something that wasn't right, you'd know about it. You've got the, some of the best players in the world practicing throw-ins. It just seemed bizarre, but that was his level of detail. We did it in October, which was horrendous timing. And it was three and a half thousand miles in 21 days. And wow. it was brutal. Robbie had almost two decades as a professional footballer, playing over 140 times for his beloved Newcastle United, as well as 250 appearances in total, which also included spells at Sunderland, Leeds, Hartlepool, and an eventful four years at Bolton Wanderers. Over his career, he's worked under some iconic managers, including Ozzy Ardiles, Kevin Keegan, Kenny Dalglish, Sam Allardyce, and Sir Bobby Robson. And we chat about all of those managers and the twists and turns Robbie had across his career and his learnings from that. I met Robbie first when he was working for the Nike Research Lab and he's forged a career in sports technology, innovation and performance since his retirement. All of that we will chat about in part two next week, but as we sat outside the bustling Westfield Shopping Centre in West London, we started with Robbie's time in the Newcastle Academy and how that compares to the modern day setup. I actually used to go to the Southampton Centre of Excellence, ran out of Gated Stadium. Southampton used to have a, a bit of a footprint in the northeast. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Shearer was obviously signed from from Newcastle. So I would I would go there in the Centre of Excellence. That's a bit random, isn't it? How did that happen? How did Southampton suddenly? Um, could they, would they be allowed to do that now? With I don't even know. I think the rules now you probably could, but it, it was yeah, it was it was strange. But Southampton were the first person to to come. Jack Hickson, the legendary uh, scout. So yeah, I'd go there and then. Southampton changed and it turned into Sheffield Wednesday. So there was a little gap when Newcastle then said, look, you're the local lad, used to play for Wall's End, so obviously all my mates would, would be going to Newcastle. So they invited me in, I think I was probably 12, 13, and then it just went from there. Your first um, professional contract, when you were academy, Ozzy Ardiles gave you a de- debut? For no, no, I, so I was even before then. So I signed my YTS at 16, um, signed professional at 17 so only did a year of the YTS Yeah. and again you, you just look around the, the players at the time the Alan Thompsons, the Lee Clarks the Steve Watsons we had such a, a good group of players and again unbelievable times but my my debut was under Jim Smith All right. Okay. so back in the, the youth team we used to have a, an incredible team playing the Northern Intermediate League which again we can go off topic, but I think this new league that they do, the it, it doesn't work for the 23s. We were playing real games. And again, it, it meant something. There were battles every weekend. I had some very good players in my team, but fortunately I was a left-back or got transitioned as a left-back and there wasn't many left-backs at the club. So my path to the first team was a lot quicker than, than others. Got the opportunity, was on the bench against Middlesbrough away, came on, we lost 3-1, but yeah, be in that dressing room with Jim Smith, Bobby Saxon, Budgie, Roy Aiken. It was a group very quick time. Yeah, I bet it was. Do you just a slight, you got me thinking there about um, academies now and they play within the academies against each other. Do you think they're missing a little bit of a trick that they don't get to play enough competitive games against adult players? 
Yes, but I also think the, the academy system is more about progress and the individual, which sounds bad, but I think it's a result-driven business. And when you go from the academy into the reserves or the first team, that's people's jobs and livelihoods. And I think sometimes they're not prepared for what's going to come when they change from the from the academy group into the professional. I mean, looking back, it was a nightmare, but the jobs, cleaning the players' boots. Yeah. Actually having one-to-one with the players and the Looking back, we used to have to get to training early because the players' kit would be numbered, but the socks and the underwear and the towels wouldn't. So you would have to fight for socks without holes in because if your pro had something that wasn't right, you'd know about it. Yeah, I bet. But nowadays, it's everything set up for these academy kids that don't bond with the first-team players, they don't learn, and having different facilities, again, I, I don't think is conducive to... And it, it made a huge difference for us being around that environment because that's who you learn off. That's where you're striving to be. I mean, who knows what's right for each individual, but I know for myself, I would get the call up to warm John Burridge up because I was a 16-year-old who could cross the ball with my left foot. He wasn't going to get the first-team lad to do it, to go out early, so I got the shout. The number of times one of us got pulled over to the first team if a player got injured or, or had to drop out of session or they needed another body, that only happened because we were there. And then you... you Again, you learn a lot from just watching how the players act around the place, listening, and, and that's what we used to do. We used to just sit and listen and watch, and we'd spend every hour we possibly could at the training ground because that's that was your, your job. Whereas nowadays, it's being separate, and I go into some of the academies now. It's Their academies are better than what we ever had as a first team. I can see that. And so go back to your debut. Firstly, like, is there, any, is there anything special that happens when you make your debut back then? Nothing. I mean... You, you just basically you, you're going from a boy to a man there's no good luck well there's a lot of good looks but after the game it's not unlucky or anything like that no you have to step up and, and show your worth and again we had an I want to say an older dressing room but some huge characters and huge personalities and yeah you, you look back and you think well I was 17 year old that's but I was lucky because I would I was making my debut with there's a couple of the younger lads in there at the same time. It wasn't one and done, so we got to to be on the bus. It was like a we would just sit in the back, like not the back but the middle, and just listen and watch and just keep quiet and and yeah, just soak it all in. And then, so what happened from there? Then, how did your career progress over those next months and following a couple of seasons? So, Jim Smith got sacked. Ozzy came in, and again, I'm really bad with dates, but Ozzy was unbelievable. He, he was the one that unlocked it for so many of the youth lads. He would come and watch youth team games uh, the morning of the first team, then go to the first team, but we were a good youth team. And he obviously liked what he saw. He probably gave six or seven of us at debuts. Again, going back, there was, there was a group of us, so it, it just became natural. You, you're literally playing for Newcastle with your friends, because they are your friends. I've known some of the lads since I was 12 years old. And it it just felt like this is what you should be doing. This is normal, which obviously it wasn't. Then I actually had an ACL way back. I was 17, so it was a long time ago. And it was, there was only one physio at the club, so spent basically six months, Monday to Friday, down at Lillishaw, back at the old rehab centre. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that was a go very quickly. You're down there with senior pros. You're working full-on recovery rehab. And I've got... Dr. Beveridge, huge thanks. And again, I still speak to his family every now and again. He saved my career without knowing it, doing a patella tendon. 
he was one of the first surgeons to ever do the patella tendon yeah, instead on of the taking the graft from the hamstring hamstring and yeah. there must have been about 12 young lads down at Lillishaw and there was only maybe one or two of us actually got careers because they had the the hamstring graft which was the normal one so yeah made a made a full recovery and by that time and Kevin was Kevin was then manager so Kevin Keegan Kevin Keegan yeah. yeah and again that was just an incredible time I actually the promotion year the videos that come out against Grimsby the game I was there you know I, I was a, a local lad and a fan but doing my rehab and you're on the outside because it's it's like a 12 months 14 months being a young lad as well it's I don't even know how I did it at that this time looking back I was super lucky to to actually make it through that that year and again it I'm probably hitting myself down here because there's a great conversation about what's luck and what's fortune and I there's a guy I speak to who he can dif- differentiate them and I can't but there's definitely a difference between luck and fortune and he was saying I put myself in a position to be fortunate I wasn't lucky and again I look at that and I think he's right but I always look at what is the pathway to the first team and because I said before the, there were some very very good players in my, my youth team but ahead of me at left back at the club there wasn't so many people in my way so my path to the first team was a lot easier than, than for others even going to Lillishaw opened my eyes to how senior pros did it at different teams because again if you're only at one club you only know one way of doing things met some very big players there again side I lost my dad when I was I was 16 which again made me grow up as well and you realise that hey go after it you know you, you have to do things right and uh, I think that changed my or not changed my mentality but my mentality is a very strong point of my my life and I think that made a big difference as well so you're at Newcastle under Kevin Keegan in one of the most successful periods in the history of Newcastle United what were your learnings from Kevin that's a good start point. Kevin should have been or could have been a politician. He was unbelievable. And again, when you're around the environment, you just look at the players he brought into the club. There was no way they should have been in Newcastle. He sold them on a dream, but he was a visionary as well. I mean, he was telling Rob Lee, you're going to play for England. John Barris, you're going to play for England. Bringing the likes of Ferdinand and Ginola, who, players who nowadays it is a global sport, but we didn't know who Ginola was. Yes, you hear his name every now and again, Europeans and French international, but to to get that group of players, and he was a genius. At, no one really left on the bad, saying bad things about Kevin. He would bring in the players to keep us up in the league, the likes of the Brian Kilkline's, Kevin Sheedy's, unbelievable professionals, and then he'd buy the next group in to take you up the next level, the David Kellys, and then you get a promotion, then you bring in the, the next... So he, he was always looking for the, the next improvement. But again, he, he would, you'd walk out on the pitch feeling 10 foot tall. He was unbelievable at building that, that strength to go out there. And you, you just expected to win. And that's an unbelievable place to be as a football player. It's having good people, people who are all pulling the same direction. Again, I've been in lots of dressing rooms and you're not always friends with people, but you have to respect your teammate or work colleague. We had a group who were friends, and it was, we still speak to this day, as if it was yesterday, and if you catch up with someone that you haven't seen for like 10 years, you just click into that mode of, remember this, remember that, and again, it, being on the bus, me, Steve Howie, with Rob Lee, John Beresford, and 
they're like, lads, this is special. What we're going through at this moment in time is special. And me and Steve were like, nah, this is this is Newcastle, this is normal. It wasn't. It's the best time, and I, I don't know any player who was there, this, the club of that era, if that wasn't the best time of the career and we didn't win anything, which is a crazy thing to say, but that was how good it was. It wasn't just on the pitch or in the dressing room, it's a city as a whole as well. And everyone says their city is a football city. If you go up to Newcastle, it literally is. People work to get the black and white shirt, a couple of beers and a ticket for the game. And it, it changes the mood of the whole place. And you just have to pick up the paper now and look at Newcastle as a, a city now over the last few months, how it's galvanised. And it was just an incredible time to be involved. And like I say, when we were bringing the players to the club, they, they just they had no idea how big a city Newcastle was on the football side until they got there. I mean, you're from that area, so you understood the belonging around the club and wearing that shirt. For, for, for players that are coming in from outside, you know, your Ginolas, Asprias and people like that, did they still feel that belonging quickly and how did that happen? Yeah, I think training. So I'm still in touch with Barry Venison. We, he was, every day from training to the game, unbelievable professional. And I would always look up to Barry and then I heard him do an interview not so long ago saying that it was actually the local lads who brought the energy in the training that showed what it meant to play for Newcastle. And he said we were the drivers in a lot of the training sessions because like you're coming here to work, the likes of me, Clarkie, Steve Watson, there were so many of us, Steve Howie. So it was so nice to hear because I never thought of that. We never looked at ourselves as, as being those types of characters. But it was interesting that he picked up on that, that it means something. Training, and it sounds really rude, training was sometimes harder than the games. And I know some players at other clubs have said the same, but yeah, when you're playing against like Ferdinand, Beersley, Ginola, Batty in training, that gets you ready for the weekend. And when you're sitting in the dressing room before the game, you look around you and you think, wow, I'm going out with these players? We're going to win. Yeah. You know, it's a beautiful position to be in, Yeah, for sure. A question that I've asked quite a lot of ex-athletes and current athletes, there's a psychological zone of optional function where there's moments in your career where you just feel like it's perfect and it might just be you know, a few seconds. Is there anything, anything that you look back now where you can think of that was, that was almost just a perfect moment? Maybe not a moment. There's, there's a couple of games where... And it's always the, the old one, it's slowed down and everything seems to work. There's a couple of games that you think back and goes, wow, that, something happened that day that you couldn't replicate every week. And then the, the spell when Kenny came in, Kenny Dalglish, who, who was my idol growing up, I had a, a spell where I was playing in front of Ginola and scored 7-16. and 16, And it was just, it just flowed. And again, the game, because you're playing with such good group of players, it, it just became not easy but just so natural that you go out and and it was just an amazing spell of games yeah so we go from Kevin's Kevin Keegan's reign to Kenny Dalglish two absolute legends and I think did you model some of your some of the way that some of your I mean <laughs> I, w- I wish he, he, he was he was just as a player unbelievable as a person unbelievable and I, I know it, it didn't necessarily work for him at Newcastle but it, off the pitch I mean, incredible as well. Kevin was his heart was in his sleeve, like everyone knows, and he would tell the press what they wanted to know. He would be completely open. Kenny wasn't. Kenny would say things in the dressing room, then 
after the game to the press it'd be just a blanket answer and the, the press didn't like that the fans don't like that in Newcastle they want to know what's going on but behind the scenes he was brilliant Would you doing that to protect the players you think 100% a bit like Ferguson used yeah, to do 100% and as a player you totally respect that and again he was he was my idol growing up just his knowledge so even stupid things that he would say he used to like playing in the night games because the floodlights it wasn't like the, the modern floodlights were amazing he'd be able to look at the shadow of the centre back and he'd be when the ball's coming to him he'd be able to tell by the shadow where the centre back is which way to turn Wow! and it's small things like that you think wow yeah, ahead of your time but he was uh, he was brilliant for me and like I say he trusted in me and, and I had a great time when he was at the club and funny he I left that summer when we um, we got in the Champions League I, I scored like I said took us to the Champions League and then I left the same summer as Lee Clark and Les Ferdinand but that wasn't Kenny that was the PLC right can you explain that then? yeah so Newcastle were, was a PLC at the time so they saw and the, the story was Bolton came in for John Beresford and the club like now we're not selling bears but what about Robbie I was a young lad, not cost anything at the club. They got two and a half million for me, which was a, a record for Bolton at the time. You look at Lee, local lad, they made money on him. Ferdinand, they thought he was coming to the end. Jeez, what a, what a mistake that was. But they, they were getting money in for players that cost them nothing. So it was, it was a business deal, not Kenny. Yeah. Kenny wanted me to stay, and, and in hindsight... When I got the call saying, oh, Bolton have agreed a fee, <laughs> I didn't know any better, and it just, it was a whirlwind. It really was, and looking back, I had a great four years at Bolton, but should I have taken more time to think about it? Yeah. Did you have much of a say in that when they asked you to move? Um, I mean, looking back now, yes, you do have a say, but I was just, again, on a whirlwind. The summer before, I nearly joined Blackburn. That fell through. The two clubs weren't talking uh, since we, we got uh, Shearer from them then we got Batty there wasn't a really good relationship um, so they wanted to take it to a tribunal and Kevin said look come back we'll pretend this never happened man of his word Right. I went back and again played as much as I'd ever played What was it like to play with Alan Shearer? Just day in day out an absolute machine incredible and again the way the first time I was in Newcastle with him I mean, unplayable throughout his career, but yeah. And you just, you're in training, you're like, you're looking around, you're playing with some of the best players in the world. I mean, he was England's number nine, top of his game, and yeah, local lads went to the same high school as him, so we roomed together a couple of times, and it's like, I'm room with Shearer, you know, it's like, yeah. like a fan. Yeah. yeah, and you're tight, so you went to Bolton. Well, I've got, maybe if I go back a little bit, and just Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish, as a player, like, because, I, I mean, you'll be able to tell me how many times you've been at a club where a manager got sacked and a new one's come in whilst you're, you know, how, how do you deal with that? Because it's a regular occurrence in football. For me, it doesn't change. And it's like when they talk about clubs being taken over, that shouldn't matter what goes on the pitch. When you go on the pitch, you're representing yourself, your team, your family and the fans. That never changes. So it doesn't matter if there's a caretaker manager, new manager, Yes, it changes on the fact that sometimes you're back to square one because you have to show your worth and you prove it. The biggest flip side is when when you're on the other side as a member of staff and there's a change of manager, 
that's when it's a really interesting one with the culture and medical staff should, shouldn't be attached to the players, maybe one of them. Um, I think it's a huge value to keep the, the knowledge in-house and the more you know about the players, the, the better. I think it's consistency is, is huge and again, I, I, I like the forward-thinking clubs now where it used to be if a manager came in, it's my way of playing, I need these players to do it, whereas you've got clubs now who have actually playing philosophies where the manager doesn't dictate, the club knows how they're playing and the manager, they already know who the next manager might be ahead of the game and the manager doesn't change the football philosophy because again, the clubs are always bigger than the manager and there's still some, some teams close to my heart where that's not the case and they need to address that very quickly because you look in the Premier League now, there's a lot of teams who have a, a DNA. Yeah, and, and they're, they're coming through, aren't they? And they're, and they're overperforming than some of these bigger traditional clubs that yeah, do tend to pivot a bit around the manager changing. Yeah, the man, that shouldn't impact the, the playing style. And again, it makes it a lot easier to bring the right players in if you have a, a philosophy and a, a way of playing that you can go out and scout the right players. Yeah, 100%. So Bolton, they had got promoted. Yep. Did you get an injury early on at Bolton? Yeah, yeah. so we um, they opened up the new Reebok Stadium. Yeah. So we played, I think, the first three or four games away from home, given the time to to open and then we were going to play Everton on the Monday night Sky Sports and that was the weekend Lady Di died right so all the games on the Saturday and Sunday got cancelled the Monday night game was touch and go whether they were going to do it or not um, obviously Bolton wanted on showcase the new stadium we played and unfortunately I had a triple leg break during that game uh, totally innocuous studs got stuck in the ground opposition player sat on my leg there was nowhere for my leg to go but again the body is an amazing thing within 10 seconds it shut down no pain no nothing that game itself we had a if if goal line technology would have been around we scored a goal that would have kept us up because we went down in goal difference that season so that was a that was a long year I think I was but again we'll, we'll get there that was the light bulb moment for me was that year Bolton did you have an operation straight away and then that rehab? So, no operation. So, they would normally pin it, so it was a tip-fib with a spiral. But right, because yeah, of the spiral, think, yeah. they couldn't pin it. Okay. So, I was I was in hospital for, I want to say, a good six weeks. I was actually moving house, so I was more comfortable in the hospital. They, they literally had to kick me out. But the, the first day back to training, crutches hobbled into the treatment room and said to the physio, what am I doing today? And he's pointed at the two lads and said, I'm getting these two fit for Saturday, you go to the gym. So I'm like, hobbled to the gym, I'm sat there thinking, what am I going to do? Literally, I did have a bit of a, a knowledge because of Steve Black at Newcastle, who we did do strength, we did do stuff. So it's was like, okay, I'm going to be here for a long time. This isn't a, a two-week injury. So I actually went back to college. So I did a sports science degree, so to speak, at, at Preston. Earl Bout was there, Michael Appleton a lot of players um, really enjoyed it but what I did was I learned about my body and then would go and train myself basically in the gym so because no obviously no rehab specialist no, no rehab specialist really, no, yeah. no S&C even yeah. so it was a it was a long 12 months but I knew at the end of that 12 months two things I knew I didn't want to be a coach I knew that the sports science side of it was going to be my next step of my career but also 
anyone will tell you it's a bizarre thing to say if you don't have an injury you go from week to week game to game and that's all you ever do and there's so many players where the end of, end of their careers just sneaks up on them I had that opportunity not only to think what's next because that, that could have ended my career it wasn't going to but it could have and, and that's that's another part of the, the mental side of it people are like are you done I'm like no it's a it's a broken leg I, I'm, I'm very stubborn and, and mentally strong on that side but also the the understanding of going from playing week to week and not being able to work on any weaknesses to be able to go okay I know I need to work on X in the gym and you can actually spend time take time and get to where you need to be so physically I actually came back physically different and that was all self-taught from your experience your knowledge that you got from the course I wouldn't and, say all but a lot of it was yeah yeah, yeah. put to practice while I was learning yeah does that mean that when you when you went back that did you question any of the training like in the future because of your knowledge or it just supplemented no supplemented it, it, again it's funny because it gym wasn't a massive thing within football yeah because back then like like the sports science degrees they were they were they were bouncing around there was a few going on but it wasn't prevalent and there were no personal trainers you know no. you weren't getting on instagram and watching all these people pretend they knew what they're talking about um so it would have what you would have had that information would there wouldn't be that many pro footballers that would have had that information that you would have had then no but also the feeling and it's funny even upper body strength in football is huge holding players off and and again when you come back on the pitch and you can do that and it just it it, obviously it helped me on the pitch as well as my my further career and you're at a moment now where perhaps like your fourth big manager Sam big Sam Allardyce at Bolton and from that relegation the team did get promoted back in 2001 is that about right was it a bit Sounds about it. Yeah, I'm I'm really bad. So it was Colin Todd that took me there, and then Toddy got got sacked, and and Sam came in. And again, people have a perception of Sam. Mine's different, and I think anyone that works under him, or most people who work under him, understand that he was very, very forward thinking. We were the first with ProZone. He was willing to try anything, give it the opportunity. If it worked, great. If it didn't, he'll hold his hands up and let's move on. Yeah, but he was he was incredible to play for at Bolton, and he he put together a very very good side, very good side, and we all knew our jobs, and it, that was the beauty of it at that time. You you knew what you were doing, and you knew what your your teammate was doing, and you knew what the team needed to do. The relationships with those the managers that we talked about these are these are huge names in football. How did you deal with your relationship with managers? Did you understand the concept of up managing, or did you just as a as a player? You do what you're told. Basically, do as you're told and, and try and do well enough in training to get in that team sheet on the on the Saturday. That and, was it. And knowing elite sport as you do now, for the last 20 years working with you know, with which, which stuff that will come to, you wouldn't change that philosophy. That's still how you'd how you'd deal with it. 100 percent, yeah. And it, again, it's crazy when I when I look back as a player and I'm thinking, oh, these managers are old and experienced, but the age I am now, I'm I'm older than some of those managers. I'm like, how did they do it? Because again, the, the stress and the pressure and the ability to, to manage personalities and people, and that again was what those guys were unbelievable at. And I think that you need that to be a successful manager. But yeah, it's it's crazy when you when you look back. And after Bolton, you got went back in and promotion. Um, was that through playoffs? Yeah, so I, I had an unbelievable four years. So the, the first year, obviously, broke my leg, missed the whole season. 
we went down on goal difference. Next year, we lost the Watford in the playoff final at Old Wembley. Year after, we lost the playoff semi-final, Worthington Cup semi-final and FA Cup semi-final. Wow. All in the same wow. season. Oh, man. And then the next season, we got promoted through the playoffs. How do you deal with losses like that as a player? Are you, you know, What's your initial like physical and mental thought process? Because you see lots of players, don't you, in changing rooms that some can quickly get rid of a failure. Others hate it if you're in a changing room after a game and someone's even beginning to smile yep. you know, where, are you, where are you on all of that? That was an incredible time and looking back how, how we, not bounced back but how we approached the next season a lot of it came from Sam on that side but it was yeah, okay we did that but this is what we're going to do this year, how we're tweaking it and again, like I said, forward thinking he brought in the first sports psychologist Mike Ford, yep. who came in at, at Bolton and again Mike did a he pivoted multiple times within that role, but we used to get analysis of the opposition player. That would never really happen back in the day of if tendencies and if a team conceded a few goals in the last 15 minutes and make a big point of it. So even if you're losing the last 15 minutes, this team concedes. So there's a lot of things that subconsciously you go out knowing about the opposition, which would help. Um, but yeah, that, that final year, the, the year before when we lost the three semis, that was brutal. It really was, and and to then go back the next year, I think we made the playoffs in the last game of the season. We won a home game, and then you know when it's when things are going your way, and and again we had a very good side, and it was just an incredible experience. I've lost count of the amount of different teams in different sports that have had those moments where they've had they've had their almost moments. You know, they've lost final, semi final, big games, and at the time they're devastated, but then the following season or two. They, you know, they become very, very successful. Um, did you at the time? Did you feel that, that although you just lost, that something was building there that was going to, you know, you were all going to learn from that? Well, I think Sam knew the ones that weren't going to learn weren't going to be there the next year. Yeah. And it, again, it's okay. it was one of those where you hear it a lot. It's like remember this feeling. We don't want this again. This is not what we want after this game. And it, it was it was that sickly empty feeling. You actually knew that you were back in training within two or three weeks because you had the extended season for the playoffs and you were still in the championship so you literally you just back to square one and I remember the first day of training running around and people were still bickering saying we're here because of you because you missed the chance and who's one then but all in good all at in you good at you for missing no, the chance no, no, no someone no, else yeah it wasn't me yeah, yeah. for sure I didn't get that far forward but yeah it was <laughs> it was the we had a good group we had an honest group and again, you're only going to get that with Sam because he wouldn't he wouldn't have anything else. Yeah. Do you always take feedback professionally and not personally? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard. I, again, when I went to Bolton, I did a, a psychological profile because that's what they used to do, again, ahead of the time. And it was a, a, the bog standard one. But I was a huge sceptic until I saw the results. I'm like, that knows me better than what I know myself. So from day one, Sam knew how to best speak to me. And it's not rant, rave, it, it's sit down and talk, have a conversation. And again, it, it's small things like that because I had a manager later in my career that all it was was shouting. And you just switch off, it's like the Charlie Brown, my man, my man, my man. And you, you don't listen, <laughs> yeah. you really don't. So 
just understanding how to how to communicate with your players was something no one had really done before. Psych um, assessments kind of vary, like clubs, some use them, some don't. There's a really interesting thing that's going on at the moment. It ha- it's happening in a couple of NBA teams in, in the US where they're getting your, so they'll get your post-match interviews or anything they can find on Instagram where you're talking and then they'll use some algorithms and some neuro-linguistic stuff to get your personality profile from that. Yeah. They think that's a lot more honest, authentic than... Because if you're if you're if you're just about to join a new club and they say can you do this psych profile, it's a pretty good Robbie Elliott version that's that's filling that in yeah. right, and it yeah. might be a different one a few weeks later. No, hundred percent. And again, there's some MLS teams you you never actually meet the players face to face before the buy them, so you don't know what you're getting. Wow. And again, there's those stories of, of Wenger back in the day would go and watch players train during the week, and that is, you know, if you go and watch a game, you like to think you're getting the best version of someone. But going to Tuesday after they've lost on the Saturday, what personality are you getting? And again, that for me, it was incredible to hear that. Don't know if it's true, but again, I, I use that a few times. Your time at Bolton takes you to perhaps the most loved manager that you know that's that's been in the game, so Bobby Robson, and your second spell at Newcastle. How did that all come about? So again, I was coming out of contract at, at Bolton. My agent at the time did an incredible job. He said, "Yeah, there's." There's a few clubs watching you, just keep doing what you're doing. Wouldn't tell me the teams. And I thought it was a little bit strange at the time, is he just keep me appeased or is it actually anyone? And then we played the playoff final, won, and then the next morning I got a phone call from Sir Bobby saying, wow. I hear you joining us. My agent hadn't told me until that point that it was Newcastle. Had you ever met Sir Bobby before that? No. No, obviously you feel like you have because of all the TV and, yeah. and knowing him and watching him and, and just for him to pick up the phone and speak to me, I hadn't even agreed a deal. But I think everyone knew that, that was never, there was never a negotiation. So I literally spoke to Sir Bobby. Next day, drove with the agent to Newcastle, met Freddie at his house, Freddie Shepherd. I wasn't involved in any of the negotiations. Literally, they came through with a bit of paper, I signed it didn't even look at what it was I was going home you don't get that opportunity and that was something that again I owe Sir Bobby so much for that opportunity to take me back to Newcastle and having played under under him what's your memories and what are your takeaways from your time with Sir Bobby be a good person be approachable just be be polite he he wanted to learn about you as a person your family we, we've all had managers in the past where if you're not playing or it's been a bad result, they'll walk past you in the, in the corridor and not speak to you every morning, no matter. And again, I had my bad times with Bobby. I didn't play for a long time, but never did I, he disrespect me or I disrespect him. He treated me like a human being, which I, which I was and which I am, and not every manager does that. And it's crazy to think that that's something so small and so what you'd expect naturally. But yeah, he, he was just... A good, good man. The consistency, that was something that he had throughout. So you never, did you ever see any any changes in his personality or is that what marked him out, that he just was so consistent on caring for everyone? Yeah, it's just his love of the game. He couldn't help but get sucked into it as well. I mean, he would he would come out on the train field every day, be involved in the sessions, the warm-ups. And, I mean, you put a camera in him and he was, a, he was an absolute unbelievable person unbelievable in front of a camera he was he was brilliant and again 
talking to staff who worked with him at the time, he was incredibly well thought, as you would expect with his experience. Nothing was by chance, even the, the signings we made, the, the way he built that team. And we went from, when I first joined, it was, it was a fractured dressing room, um, into a, a vibrant team, lots of energy with experience down the spine. Literally how you would first pick a team. And yeah, again, he was brilliant with me. So I, I went to Newcastle, became very close to the fitness coach, Paul Winsper at the time. Um, they were brilliant with me. So I would go to Northumbria University before training, go to training, go back to university for lectures and then work at the academy at night. So from what I learned at Bolton, I knew that that was going to be me. They pushed me on to then do a full degree when I was at Newcastle. So they helped so much on that side as well. I've got so many different questions about Bobby Robson because um, when I've seen the documentaries and everything else about him, he, he just um, exudes like kind of love, I suppose. And he's one of the r- rare managers, British managers, that's also been successful overseas. Like uh, you did, didn't you do it? Did you do a cycle ride? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, talk us through that because that sounds like a right. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I, I've lost my dad through cancer, father-in-law through cancer. I think everyone's had yeah, touch my dad's cancer. Yeah, the same, yeah. So obviously lost to Bobby as well. But what I, um, I always wanted to do something when I finished football. Didn't know what it was, just as a, not just a thank you, but something big, some, some event. So I actually came up with the idea, the, the bike for Bobby, and it was cycle every team he managed. So you look at it in a map and it, it looks pretty good. Porto, Lisbon, Barcelona, PSV, over to Wembley because of England, did Fulham, Ipswich, Newcastle. Yeah, on the map it looked all right. And I, <laughs> I sort of committed very quickly with a, a friend, Phil, who uh, he was an Ironman, multiple Ironman. And it was one then where I just said I was going to do it because if I didn't commit, there was always going to be that, that thought that I was going to drop out. So yeah, committed to it. We did it in October, which was horrendous timing, but only time it worked on calendars. And it was three and a half thousand miles in 21 days. And it was brutal. But what was amazing was no matter where we were on that journey, because we had a van with Sir Bobby's face on, the amount of times you'd stop and people would smile and talk about Sir Bobby, of their experiences, wherever he was, no one had a bad word to say, which is incredible. I'm just going to ask one question about Bobby Robson. Um, how he was in the changing rooms before and after games and his kind of um, percentage of empowering players. How, what's, what's your thoughts on that? that you share he was with? all about the details. And again, I'm sure it's, it's been on a few of the documentaries or whatever. You, you'd see him doing the team talks and, yeah, it, it was... Throw ins that that was his biggest bugbear, and we would train throw ins through the week, yeah. not like we have the specialist. Just basically, how do you keep the ball throwing? Because yeah. he's like you work so hard to get it, don't just throw it away. And you, you've got the, some of the best players in the world practicing throw ins. It just seemed bizarre, but that was his level of detail. And he had a again the the fact he had the young players coming through who he was so far off that generation to the senior players and how he dealt with them all it, it was a master he was a master dealing with players when you have coaches that kind of are like the British Library you know he's got that amount of information then 
he'll start seeing stuff totally differently and that's a great example isn't it because yeah. um, in football even now I'm speaking to coaches that work in the, in the Premier League about throw-ins and they're still trying to work out how to have an effective system to retain the ball you know and so you're, you're giving them some information about some NBA playbooks because obviously the side outs yeah. they always try to create some movement to allow a player to be free but in football it's like well if there's no one on just throw it out the line yeah and like that, that doesn't it's bizarre, and the percentages yeah, yeah. of getting the ball back from doing that is very low <laughs> yeah, yeah. it is bizarre isn't it it really is and it, again I wouldn't say we enjoyed it because we do it every week but yeah that's what we used to do is details detail I love Robbie talking about how he saw those amazing managers like Sir Bobby Robson concentrate on the detail and the relationships it always comes up when I'm asked about coaching and what is important to me Easy to lose detail when tactics and the bigger picture can submerge everything else you do, if you're not careful. But the coach that really understands his trade always sees the detail as he knows that is what will ultimately improve the player, the team, the organisation. And as Robbie chatted about, it can rub off to the players and other staff too. Players might take more ownership on the detail of recovering from an injury, learning more about how they can prepare better. The ripples suddenly create even more positive change in a team because the coach has consistently applied the focus to detail. It's probably not a coincidence that Robbie is now forging a hugely impressive career in performance and sports technology, innovation and sports science. That's where we pick up the conversation in part two and get an insight into that and more. Now, the various people, moments and resources Robbie and I mentioned will have the necessary links in the show notes on Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. If you haven't subscribed to the pod, which costs you a few seconds of your time, then I'd love you to do that. And if you want to reach out to me, then go to benryan.co.uk and you can contact me there as well as on my socials. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening.